Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 21. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Psychiatrists call it the Paris effect. And it simply means the disappointment that first-time visitors to the city of Paris experience after having very hyped up expectations through the media. The disappointment sets in when they get there and instead of seeing uh, daily life in the city as this romanticized version that comes on commercials and movies and the beauty and the wealth and the romance of Paris, they arrive and see paved streets with cigarette butts and aggravated commuters on packed metro trains. One psychiatrist who worked in France said this, for some, the shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help for symptoms that may include irritability, fear, obsession, depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. The Paris effect doesn't just speak of first-time visitors to Paris. The Paris effect describes the human heart. We live 
with very high expectations of the next gadget or the next toy or the next job or the next promotion or the next salary bringing us the contentment and the satisfaction that our hearts long for. But what we experience is just the opposite. So often that thing that we look to, that we think is going to bring us contentment, actually does just the opposite, brings us discontentment, leaves us disillusioned, and then looking for the next opportunity that promises to finally deliver what our hearts are looking for. So the question becomes, in a world that's full of these false promises of contentment, what is true contentment? What is true contentment? First, we see that contentment, or this true contentment, is a contentment that's not dependent on material possessions. Verses 3 to 5 are one long sentence in the Greek, and it basically explains the teaching, the character, uh, the corruption of these false teachers that are in this church in Ephesus. And what these false teachers were doing were removing Christ or minimizing Christ from the center and putting something else in the center of godliness. So starting in verse 6, Paul responds to this teaching that is minimizing Christ and putting something else in the center that's going to bring contentment. He says in verse 6, now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. This word for contentment shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all a grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, there's the word, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That all sufficiency means everything, one, what one needs, right? provision of what one needs. Proverbs 38 gets at this understanding of contentment. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now, these are describing what we would call external contentment or the provision of things that will make you externally content. But the word that Paul uses or the contentment he's speaking of in verse 6 is inner contentment. So even in verse 8, when he says, but if we have food and clothing, we'll, we, with these we'll be content, he's not saying that food and clothing bring you contentment. What he's saying is, when we have this inner contentment, then food and clothing is all that we need. Right? This inner contentment. He speaks of it in Philippians 4.11, when he says, I've learned in whatever situation... I am to be content. Inner contentment, not circumstantial contentment. In the major philosophical schools of the day in the first century, contentment was a prized virtue. 
It was prized. It was held out there. And there were two basic schools of how you found contentment. There were the Stoics. And the Stoics defined contentment as a person that was in harmony with nature, indifferent to circumstances. So the Stoics realized that contentment tied to circumstances is a losing proposition because circumstances can go from good to bad really, really quickly. And so they said contentment is being one with the created world, one with nature, independent of circumstances. The other school of thought in the first century on how you found contentment, they were called the cynics. And the cynics defied contentment as a person that was completely self-sufficient and didn't depend on anyone else. So the cynics realized that tying contentment to another person is a losing proposition because people fail you all the time. So the cynics said contentment's found being completely self-sufficient so you don't have to depend on anybody. Now, you merge these two schools of thought together and here's what you've got or one alternative of what you would have. I'm gonna make a lot of money. I'm gonna become independently wealthy. I'm gonna move out west and purchase a plot of beautiful land in the middle of nowhere and live off the land. So I'm in one with nature. I don't have to depend on anyone. I have money that can outlast my death. No people, no, mo- no problems, uh, uh, no financial strain. That's contentment. Now, here's the reality. The, the cynics and the Stoics both got the problem right. They identified the problem, which is, yes, contentment is not found in circumstances because they change. Yes, contentment is not found in people because people fail you all the time. They disappoint you all the time. Problem is they didn't get to the right solution. Identified the problem correctly, but didn't get to the right solution of where contentment is found. Material acquisition, which is what Paul is starting to get to here with the love of money, material acquisition that aims at self-sufficiency through external contentment does nothing to address the internal or the inner contentment needs of the human heart. Does nothing to address that. And so Paul reminds us of something very common or common to every human being that would expose the folly of thinking that material acquisition or material possession can bring contentment to the heart. It says in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Which is really just almost a quote of what Job says in chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Just the simple fact of birth and death expose the folly of pinning your life's hope on material possessions or material acquisition. Jesus says it himself in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why should you be on guard? Because it's not just that material possessions fail to satisfy you, 
and bring contentment, the love for material possessions or the love of money actually bring discontentment. That's what Paul goes on to say. It's not just that it's not going to satisfy you. It's actually going to land you in a worse place, is what Paul's saying. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ruin, destruction, abandonment of the faith, pain. This is where the love of money will ultimately land you. Love of money, two phrases here, love of money, root of all kinds of evils. Let's start with the love of money. Notice what Paul says here. Money is not the problem. And money is not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. Ecclesiastes 5.10. Let me just say, this verse is loaded with meaning and exposing the folly of the love of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You see what that's saying. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with it. Or if you love wealth, you'll never be satisfied with your income. It'll never be enough. The question has been posed, how much money would be enough for you? If that question were asked to you, how much money would you need to make for it to be enough for you? They've actually run a number of studies around that question. They've asked that question to large populations of people, and the findings are fascinating. It's actually remarkable. What they found is that no matter what someone's making, whether it's 30000 a year or a million a year, they all say just about 10% more would make me content. And what they found is when they asked that question again later in a person's development in their career, when they're, they've gone from 30000 to to 100000 or whatever, the answer's the same, just 10% more. One psychologist got it right when she said, by its very nature, Greed is endless and never assuaged. And by being a form of the impulse to live, it ceases only with death. Now, the problem with the love of money is that often it goes undetected. Notice what Paul says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil which means that the motivation or the love of money is oftentimes hidden. Comparing it to a root says it's oftentimes something we can't see, but it's feeding and growing behaviors. That the, the hidden motivation of love of money can produce behaviors that on the surface can be attributed to another source. But below the surface, that is the, the root or the hidden motivation. 
in a previous house we lived in, it was really frustrating. We had a guest bathroom and the toilet got clogged all the time, all the time. And it was also the kid's bathroom. So it was really frustrating. And I remember when this happened over and over, I would, uh, in my mind, I was thinking through what, what is causing this? And I started with, you know what? When they built this house, they just didn't slope the drain lines enough. And that's why this all was getting clogged. And then I moved from that to people are just using too much paper. And then I moved to, you know what? One of, one of the kids probably flushed a toy down the toilet and it got stuck. And then we decided, let's just replace it. So we replaced the toilet. And when the toilet came off, what we found was uh, shocking but revealing. About a 12-inch long, probably 3-inch wide mass of roots had grown down into the drain line. The roots had made their way through a crack in the foundation of our house and found a really good supply of water. But it was hidden. We had this problem. And the, and, and the reason for the problem was hidden from our eyes. And so it can be with the love of money. Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, which means it feeds sin and evil, but it's also very hidden. It's hard to detect. It's hard to identify. And it brings all kinds of discontentment. And even worse, verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. One author gives great insight here. He says, you cannot make your goal the acquisition of money and at the same time receive direction for your will and actions from the faith or from faith in Christ. So what is true contentment? First, it's a contentment that's not dependent on material possessions. But second, it's a contentment that's not dependent on worldly comfort. It's a a contentment not dependent on worldly comfort. Starting in verse 11, Paul's gonna exhort Timothy both to flee and to pursue. Says, Timothy, flee these things like the love of money, And pursue something. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what does it mean to take hold of the eternal life to which you're called? Let's start with eternal life. What does eternal life mean? Most often, it gets defined as the duration of life in the age to come. And that is true. That's part of it. But the scriptures often define eternal life as the quality of life in the present, in the here and now. In fact, that's how Jesus defines eternal life in John 17. He says in John 17, and this is eternal life, that that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
Eternal life is knowing Christ and embracing the life that, that Christ calls for. Now, what's, what's the nature of the life that Christ calls for? Well, Paul reminds Timothy of the good confession he made in the presence of many witnesses. But then he, he ties Timothy's good confession to the confession of Christ. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Interesting, as he talks about Timothy's good confession, he parallels it to Christ's confession before Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor. It was over the Roman province of Judea, and Christ was coming into trial or coming up for trial before him. And remember, as he stood before Pilate, Pilate asked him some questions, and Jesus explained clearly who he was at great cost to himself. Because as he truthfully told Pilate who he was, hours later, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. And so what Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, you have an opportunity to speak truly about who Jesus is, to make the good confession of who Christ is, even if it costs you, even if you experience loss or threat because of the confession you make about Christ. In the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul kept the faith. He kept the good confession of Christ, and it resulted in him being poured out like a drink offering, which is not a life of comfort and ease. That's what he's describing there. When Paul says in verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means to gain, he is describing a similar issue that happened in the Corinthian church. In his letter to the Corinthians, it becomes evident that those in the Corinthian church, and now he's saying it's happening in Ephesus as well, a theology of the cross was being replaced with a doctrine of human advancement. Let me explain that. What, it, what that means is that they were replacing the theology of the cross with a doctrine of the gospel as a means towards a better quality of life, towards a more comfortable life, towards an, an easier life. It was, it was your best life now in a society that was defined by materialism and consumerism. Contentment is not found by taking hold of a pain-free, comfortable life. Though every part of your flesh craves that, contentment's not found by taking hold of the pain-free, comfortable life. Contentment is found by taking hold of eternal life, which is Jesus. 
both now and in the future. Contentment is found in taking hold of Christ no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. And when you take hold of Christ in this world, inevitably there will be pain and loss and disappointment that accompanies that. And the challenge is not to when you experience that pain and loss to say, I'm not, I'm not happy, I'm not content, let me go put the gospel aside and take hold of the comfortable life. No, it's to take hold of Christ no matter what. Now, you may say, wow, I'm so thankful we haven't replaced the theology of the cross with the doctrine of a pain-free, comfortable life. So glad that was a Corinthian problem and an Ephesian problem, but we've kind of made our way and, and we don't ex experience that anymore. We get the theology of the cross. Let me just say that uh, wandering from the gospel is very subtle. And it happens over time and it, it's almost unnoticeable. Let me give you an example of how we can replace the theology of the cross with the doctrine of a pain-free, comfortable life. Let me speak to parents. Parents, if you consistently, that's a key word, because there are times, but if you consistently seek to keep your child from failing or from experiencing pain, then you are replacing the theology of the cross with a doctrine, the doctrine of a comfortable, pain-free life. And that temptation as parents even expands into organizations. So let me give you another example. Uh, there are a number of kids' sports leagues that have the philosophy that every kid wins and every kid gets a trophy and no kid is ever to experience losing. Now on the surface, that seems very encouraging and uplifting and we keep kids happy that way, but that is not setting them up for life in a broken world. Because in a broken world, you are going to experience loss you're going to lose. You're going to experience pain. That's a very practical example of how we replace the theology of the cross with a doctrine of pain-free, comfortable life. Because the reality is, the theology of the cross says the place we actually meet Jesus is in our pain and failure. That's actually where you meet Jesus, is in pain and failure. And so to run from pain or to shield from any kind of pain or to walk away from it or to pretend like it's not there is to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the very place that you meet him, the very place that you find him. Avoidance of pain doesn't bring contentment. Although it, it, it just looks so obvious. If I can just avoid pain, I will be content. And, and that's a lie. Avoidance of pain doesn't bring contentment. Ultimately, it brings discontentment for the reason I just said. 
Because when you avoid pain, you avoid Jesus. You avoid pain, you avoid the gospel. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring satisfaction and contentment to the human heart. The word word take hold in verse 12, take hold of eternal life, that word take hold is a word that means to seize. And oftentimes it means to seize violently. So it's the same word that's used in Matthew 14 to describe how Jesus took hold of Peter as he was sinking. It's the same word used in Acts 21 to describe how the crowd took hold of Paul as they dragged him out of the temple. Best-selling author Annie Dillard heard of a man who after shooting an eagle, don't judge that, just shot an eagle, eagle falls to the ground, and as he went to inspect this eagle, he found the dry skull of a weasel attached to the eagle's neck by the jaws of this dry skull. So apparently what had happened is the eagle pounced on the weasel, and the weasel bit the bird in the throat, and obviously this weasel got torn and eviscerated, but in the process never let go of the eagle, and instead became an airborne skull flying around on this eagle's throat. Annie Dillard goes on to say this, very poetic language reflecting on it. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go. To dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. That's what it looks like to take hold of eternal life, which is Jesus now and Jesus in the new creation to come. To take hold of eternal life and and grab hold of it and never let go no matter what through the ups and downs, through the joy and the pain, through the success and the failure, through the gains and the losses. But to take hold of Jesus. True contentment is not found in taking hold of worldly comfort. True contentment is found in taking hold of Jesus no matter what and never letting go. What is true contentment? It's a contentment not dependent on material possessions. It's a contentment not dependent on worldly comfort. And finally, it's a contentment that is seized through generosity. Verses 18 to 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
There's three commands here. They all mean the same thing. Do good is a single word in the Greek. It's used in one other place in the New Testament, Acts 14, 17, where it speaks of God showering his gifts on his hearers. These three commands are identical and they're calls to be generous. Generous with your money, generous with your time, generous with the gifts that God has blessed you with. Why? End of verse 19. So that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this doesn't mean that you give to earn salvation. This doesn't mean that you give to earn eternal life. Jesus Christ has been incredibly generous. He gave his own life so that he could take hold of you and never let go. So rest in that assurance, that comfort. Jesus gave up everything. He was generous, gave up his own life to grab hold of you and never let go. That's where your ultimate assurance comes from. Now, a child can rest peacefully and joyfully in his parents' arms, or a child can be kicking and screaming in his parents' arms. Either way, the parent's not letting the child go. This is not speaking of generosity to earn eternal life or to earn salvation. This is speaking of generosity as the way to contentment and peace in your relationship with Jesus. Paul here describes the way you actually take hold of the life that is truly life, of eternal life. Jesus now, Jesus in the new creation, you give. You give your money, you give your time, you give your gifts that God has blessed you with. Those who give never suffer loss, but only become richer and richer and richer in the age to come. Augustine said it this way, from the goods which they distributed to others and so placed in greater safety, they derived more happiness than they incurred sorrow from the goods which they anxiously hoarded and so lost more easily. Nothing could be really lost on earth save what one would be ashamed to take to heaven. When you give, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's your talents, your gifts, when you give, you give to Jesus. That's what Jesus makes clear in Matthew 25, 40. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers. In other words, when you help one of my brothers or sisters, he says, you did it to me. So when you support a missionary or a missions organization, or when you tithe to the church, or when you help a neighbor in need, or when you use a talent that you have to bless someone, you're giving to Jesus. That's the cultivated discipline in the mind and the heart is to say, I'm giving this to Jesus. And you know what it's like on Christmas morning or at a birthday when you have bought a present for someone and you can't wait for them to open it. You give it to them, you can't wait for them to open it. 
works the same with Christ. When we give, there's a joy and contentment of giving to Jesus in expressions here in this world. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed in the jungles of Ecuador. Their goal was to bring the good news of Jesus to the Aka Indians. And the Akas were a notoriously dangerous tribe. People had tried to engage them before and they were attacked. And so Jim and these missionaries flew over uh, the forest and over where they were at for probably about three months. They would drop gifts, they would shout greetings, but then they landed. When they landed, they set up a hut and they waited for the Akas to come and engage them. On Friday, January 6th, three Akas, one male, two females, came and they exchanged greetings. Jim and the missionaries shared balloons and yo-yos and to connect with these Akas. On Sunday, January 8th, they were to, uh, to call in, radio call in to give update and there was nothing but silence. So they sent in the planes to see what was going on. Eventually, they sent in a rescue party. And they found four of them lanced to death. And the fifth one, they never found the body. They were all martyred for Christ. They were all married. Four of them were fathers. Jim Elliott famously said and lived out these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How has the false promise of contentment through more stuff, more money, more comfort left you empty. There's a reason why it leaves you empty. Because the satisfaction that your heart is longing for can only be found in Jesus Christ. Take hold of him. Take hold of eternal life. Jesus now, Jesus in the new creation to come, Take hold of him by giving what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we confess the reality of the world we live in. We're surrounded by materialism. We're surrounded by the, the, the promises that if we have this or that, we will be content. And Father, we hear from you that that's a lie. And rather than bring contentment, it ultimately brings emptiness. Father, would you draw our wandering hearts to you that we would take hold of eternal life, take hold of your son and find our joy and our satisfaction, our contentment in him 
And would we, would we take hold and never let go? And yet, Father, the reality is that we do take hold and then we let go and then we repent and we come back. We're thankful for the assurance that Jesus, you have given it all. You gave your life to take hold of us and you never let us go and you give us this meal, the Lord's Supper, to remind us of that. So even when we do wander, which usually is hourly or daily, you give us the assurance that you, by your son Jesus, have taken hold of us. And it's that truth that continues to draw us back that we would once again take hold of you. Oh, Father, would you capture our hearts now as we sing, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.